finish with these verses today. We've been spending about three or four messages. I guess this is part four, so this is the fourth message out of this passage. Um, but it's good to understand Scripture, to understand what it teaches us. And as we've been studying the uh, qualifications of elders as God has put them forth in his word, it makes uh, sense for us to understand those things because we're the ones who recognize God's appointment of those elders. And so we're going to be reading that passage again, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. So starting at verse 1 in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Bible says, This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop must then be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy, a filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil." Let's take a minute and pray, and then we will look at uh, these verses 4 through 7 today as we look at what God has for us. Let's bow our heads. Father, Lord, we need you right now. As we look into your word, we submit to your authority and the truth of your word. Lord, it is to be our guide and our rule in everything that we do as your followers. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to open our minds, to open our hearts to receive that which you would have for us to learn today. Lord, we need you to teach us. We need your spirit to guide us into all truth as you have promised. And so I pray that you would remove the distractions now so that we might focus on the things that you want to teach us. Lord, use me during this time as your spokesperson and as your instrument. I pray that you would just give me strength of body and of mind, of tongue, so that I might speak the things that you want me to speak, that we might hear your truth, that you might be lifted up, that your name might be proclaimed in your goodness. Um, expressed to us today. Lord, just go with us now. I pray that during this time, you would receive all the glory and honor for what we do. Accept our worship now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, we have been going through the qualifications for elders, and our series is called Choosing Qualified Elders. This is part four. Um, and as we explore the qualifications for God, uh, God's choice for elders for the church, we, we have kind of focused on one word, which we see right at the beginning of this chapter. In verse 2, it says a bishop must then be blameless. And this is talking about his character as a person, his moral character. And all of these 12 um, attributes or characteristics that we've studied so far are part of that moral character of the person that the Bible says must be there, Okay. Now, if you put all of those together and we look at the whole of the person, I think obviously we're talking about his moral character, but we can sum it all up with this one word, integrity, okay? Integrity. And if you look up integrity in the dictionary, it's defined as the entire unimpaired state of anything, particularly of the mind. 
moral soundness or purity, uncorruptness, uprightness, honesty. And then it says integrity comprehends the whole moral character, but has a special reference to uprightness in mutual dealings, transfers of property, and agencies for others. So it has to do with what we are on the inside to start with, but then it manifests itself by how we act on the outside. What we've seen so far are these characteristics that come from within. What is the person himself? This is the moral character of the person, and this is what we found in verses 3 and 4. All of these different characteristics in which the man must be blameless. And so as we come to the next set of verses in verses <clears throat> excuse me, 4 through 7, now we're talking about how this is all manifested specifically on the outside and what other people see this person in their behavior in everyday life. Okay? Now, we come back again to this word integrity. Integrity has to do with your reputation. And it's what people know you to be through the pattern of your words and actions as you interact with them. And so you ask these questions. Is this person fair in his dealings? Does he treat people with kindness and love? Does he obey the law? Does he follow God's law? Is he concerned about the spiritual well-being of other people and about himself? Okay, so there are all these questions in our mind when we look at the consideration of a man for this position of elder that God has ordained. And again, let me remind you, we're not appointing somebody to elder. We're not saying, yes, we believe you're the right one as far as our opinion is concerned. God has already called and marked that person for that ministry through his gifting, through God's calling, and we recognize God's calling through the, the uh, conformity of his life to all of these things that we see in 1 Timothy 3. So it's not like we give him a list and say, okay, now once you have all these checked off, you'll be good. We know this list, and that's why we're studying this now, and hopefully you know, we're not replacing me in the near future. I intend to be here a long time. So, you know, unless God intervenes, you're going to have to put up with me. Okay, but the point is we need to be prepared when the time comes. And right now we have two elders. But when God says it's time to ordain or, or uh, install another elder, we need to be ready as a group and already understand these characteristics that we're looking for in his life at that point rather than give them a list and say, okay, when, it's time, when you checked it all off, come back and see us. Okay? Because we're talking about the character of a person. Anybody can take a list and pretend or conform to it and give a performance and basically trick people into thinking that he is the man that, that meets these qualifications. But as we get to know people, as we get to know their moral character, their integrity, their daily performance we see God's mark in their life. And so as we together pray about things like this, then we go through this list again and we say in our mind, yeah, I see that God has already done in him all of these things, and so God clearly has marked him for this position. Okay? So it's about his integrity. And integrity is not judged or defined by you. Your integrity is not defined by you. Your integrity is defined by what people see you as. What do people see in you? It's your reputation. Because you can't go around and act one way and then try to convince somebody that you're something else that they don't see. It doesn't work that way. So from within, all these moral characteristics that we've looked at so far is what is the core of this integrity, and then it's demonstrated in how we behave and act and live our lives out in front of others. 
So today, we're going to look at these three more areas of characteristics in which an elder must qualify. We've looked at his moral character already. We spent a lot of time in that. And today we see the last three. The first one is that we must evaluate his home life. The second one is that we must evaluate his spiritual maturity. And third, we must evaluate his public reputation. Okay, so starting at verse 4, the Bible says, one that ruleth his own house. I'm going to stop right there for a second because we need to break this phrase down. The word ruleth here is the same Greek word, proisteme, which means to manage or preside over. It's the word that was applied to elders, in fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. It talks about elders who rule well. That's proisteme. Okay? Same word. So Paul gives us a parallel in how a person manages his household and how he will manage the house of God. And he's saying, basically, a person who can't manage his own house is not qualified to manage the house of God. Okay? So there's a link that Paul establishes here between how he manages his own home and what happens at church. So he's to manage his house, but it says he's to manage his house or to rule his house well. The, the Greek word for well here is kalos. It means with excellence. Now, there are two Greek words for kalos. We looked at one a, a while back. Um, it's agathos. This means excellence internally. This one, kalos, is an outward or aesthetic excellence. So it's not just about the moral character. Here Paul's saying it's about what people see. Now, I've heard people say this, and I don't agree with them necessarily. They'll say, you know what? It doesn't matter what I wear or what I do because God looks at the heart and he knows what I am. Well, I'm sorry. What you are determines what you do and how you behave. It's a reflection of what's inside. And that's exactly what Paul's saying here. We've looked at all the internal characteristics. Now it's time to look at the outward. How do you behave outwardly? And kalos is that aesthetic excellence or that outward excellence that people see. So that's how he manages his household. How do people see that he manages his household? Then we get to this word household. This is more than just a man's family. Obviously, how he rules, if you want to use that word, his family is important. Because how can he rule the house of God if he can't rule his family? But this encompasses more than just the people in his house. It is everything that has to do with his home life. It includes his finances, his schedule, his hobbies and entertainment, how he handles his stuff and takes care of his stuff. So it's basically everything he does in managing his home life, okay, everything that happens at home. And you look at his home life as a whole, and the evaluation is if he is able to manage and maintain all of these things the way God wants him to in order to be a good testimony to others. Now, here's one of the things, and, and I, I don't remember how this church did it when I first you know, was being interviewed, but... Um, I know other churches that I've talked to, they'll ask a candidate for, be, for the eldership to look at his finances. Let me see your checkbook. Let me see what's going on there. How do you manage your money? And I've never had a problem with saying, okay, you know what, in fact, in our church back home, uh, back home, back in Michigan, I'm here is home now, uh, but our church back in Michigan, there was a point at which we were going through some financial struggles, and I went to the church and said, I'm I, want to be transparent. Here's our, our finances. If you want to look at it, I, I just want you to look at it and tell me if I can improve. 
Okay, but I think that's the attitude that Paul's saying here is that everything within his home life should be transparent. It should be on the up and up and according to God's word so that people can see that he's doing well with his family and with his home. And therefore, that will translate into how he manages the house of God. So when Paul starts here and he says he has to manage his household well, it's a reflection of how he operates and rules at home. Okay. Then the second phrase here in verse 4, he says, is having his children in subjection with all gravity. Now, we're going to spend a little bit of time on this one because this is important. Now, the children in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that are mentioned, the reference is to children who are still in his home and under his authority. Okay? And it says they must be in subjection, having his children in subjection, or the word is under control. This word subjection is a military term. And if you've been in the military or if you know anything about the military, when the sergeant walks into the room, it's like, bam, attention. Everybody stops what they're doing and straightens up at that point. And he has their full attention. Okay? That's literally the picture that Paul's giving here of how his children respond to him. Okay? Does he have them under control and disciplined? Now, I'm not saying he beats them every day. That's not what I mean by the word discipline. Okay? It, the, the word discipline means they live a disciplined lifestyle. They understand God's standard for their life in how they're supposed to respect the authority of their parents and how they're supposed to love each other. Okay? And that's a challenge. I grew up in a family with two brothers and a sister. And I wasn't always perfect in loving my brothers and sisters. I know probably some of you were perfect in that, uh, but, you know, I, I, I'm still working on that one with siblings. But, see, God puts us in families to test us, to try us, and to teach us those principles that we need to learn in order to live outside of the family. And specifically, Paul is saying how he manages his household says something about how he is going to manage his church and how he manages his children and how he's taught his children and how he's disciplined his children is going to relate to how he disciplines and manages and teaches the church. Now, when it comes to church discipline, I mean, that's a hard subject to talk about, but it has to happen when necessary. And what I've seen many times is that in church discipline, It's an abuse of authority where people basically are ostracized and pushed out, and then nobody wants anything to do with him. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on church discipline, but it's not a shunning. The whole point of church discipline is to give them over, their bodies over to Satan, so that their soul is restored, but we want to restore them in love. Okay? And that's how a man must approach his children in disciplining them the correct way. Now, I remember my wife and I, when we were first married, we decided to get two little puppies to practice for our kids, okay? I'm glad we did because it taught us a lot about us and what problems we had and things we still needed to learn, okay? But I remember the the dogs were, I don't know, three months old, I guess, and, you know, they're cute, and everybody who doesn't know them thinks they're cute and they're fun and, you know, they're all of this. When you live with them and they, you know, wet on the floor and they chew all the wires and they rip apart your carpet, they're not so cute anymore. But it taught us something about discipline without anger, okay? Because it's very easy as a parent to get angry. And we looked at last week. 
an elder is not supposed to lash out in anger. And here's a perfect example of where that has to happen, at home. Discipline is to be done in love. And so Paul says how he controls, how he has taught his children is a representation of how he's going to manage the church and teach the church. Now, so his children must be under control. Now, I want you to flip over a few pages to Titus chapter 1 because Titus elaborates on this a little bit. Go past 2 Timothy, and then Titus is your next book. And right at the beginning in chapter 1, Paul gives a, a repetition, actually, of these qualifications to another pastor, Titus. And he elaborates a little bit on some of these things. And this one about children is one of the ones that he gives more information on. And if you look at verse 6 in chapter 1 of Titus, it says, If any be blameless, there's our word, by the way, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly. Now, this one takes it a step further, actually. Okay? The word here, faithful, is important. Let me talk about the other two words first. We'll come back to this word faithful. It says they are not accused of riot or unruly. Those are terms that the ESV uh, interprets as dissipation and rebellion. Okay? I think from the word rebellion or riot, we get the idea of what kind of kids these are. The, the definition of these or how it's used in common Greek is that these are talking about drunken parties and pagan festivals. And how would people act in a drunken party or a pagan festival. And that's describing how an elder's kids are not supposed to be, okay? So the rebellion he's talking about here is not a political revolution or a political rebellion. It's a personal unruliness. And here's the core of it, a refusal to submit to authority. And this is a real problem because if a, a man who wants to be an elder or thinks he is called to be an elder cannot establish his authority in the home and rule well with that authority in love, how is he supposed to do it in the church? If his children will not recognize his authority, how will people in the church? And so Paul says the children are a great example, not only of how he will manage people or deal with people in the church or teach them, but it's also a reflection of things that he has ignored at home, okay? So Titus tells us they cannot be unruly. Um, now, the word faithful, it describes the children, and we need to look at this. Many in our modern culture and in modern churches want to take this term faithful and talk about this being defi uh, defined as children who kind of conform to the standard, they're obedient to their parents, um, you know, they're, they're good kids generally, but it's not talking about salvation because there's no way that a father can be responsible for his children's salvation, right? God saves us, and I agree with that. But let me look at what Scripture says, and then we'll talk more about this. This word faithful in the Greek is pistos. It means to believe. So he's saying believing children. Now, if that was all we had and we didn't have anything else to go on, we could say, well, you know, believing means that they act like they believe. They come to church, they pray, they, you know, read their Bibles, they do the things they're supposed to. And we can't really know their hearts, so we can't judge them as far as their salvation is concerned. And this then would cover 
uh, pastor's kids who grow up in the church, and then when they get all out on their own, they just abandon God and religion altogether. But the word pistos is translated as believing children. Now, here's the problem, and I guess it's a problem for those who want to take this as something other than what the Bible says it is, okay? If you look at this word pistos, every other place in the New Testament that it's used, it's referring to genuine believers. So if we take it here and say, well, it means that they act like believers, they obey their parents, but they don't necessarily have to be saved, then we're saying this is an exception to this word apart from everywhere else that it's used and apart from the definition that God has given to us everywhere else in the New Testament for this word when it describes a person, a genuine believer. And so as we read just what it says, it says an elder's children have to live as if they are saved. They have to confess the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the logical conclusion to that is you can see that, in obviously, when his kids are in his household, but when they get out on their own and they rebel, are they still his children? They are. They're not under his authority, but they're still his children. They still represent, in a sense, him and his, his authority, and so it casts a reflection back on him. Now, I don't want to be hard-nosed, but studying it out just based on what it says, if a, children, if a pastor's children rebel then, this seems to be saying that he's disqualified. I don't know how else to interpret that because that's the way it reads. He has to have believing children. Okay? Now, I know the argument is we're not responsible for our, our children's salvation, and that's true to some degree. We can't make sure our children are saved, but we can do everything within our power to give them the truth of God's word and to live it out in our lives so that they see the genuineness of our faith and our genuine trust in God and our genuine commitment to obey God as our authority in influencing them to understand the gospel and follow Christ. That's why in Deuteronomy chapter 6, when Paul, Paul, sorry, when Moses from God gives Israel the law, he gives them what they call the Shema. This is the command. And we talked about this several weeks ago. And in it, it basically starts by saying, you have to understand that I am one God, I am the only God. This is God talking to them. He said, and you will only worship me as God. And I will be your God, and you will be my people. But then he goes on and he says, now, you understand these truths. I'm going to hold you to live this truth and to obey my commandments because of that fact. And you are to diligently teach your children when you lie down, when you stand up, when you walk by the way, when you sit down. You are continually to teach your children this principle about who I am as God in your life and that you submit to me as your authority. Proverbs chapter 22 echoes that. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, I've heard people say, well, you can't take that as an absolute. It's in the Bible. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And this is going to be hard because it's, Difficult sometimes to acknowledge the truth, but 
a lot of times, and I'm not saying every time, but a lot of times the failure of the children comes back to what doesn't happen at home. Let me explain that just for a second. We have a whole generation, I'm afraid, of parents who have trained their children to conform to Christianity when they're out in public, but when they're at home, it really doesn't matter. Okay, and what I mean by that is this. Our kids know us very personally. They know all of our weaknesses. They know our strengths. They know our sins because we're at home. And when we're at home, we let our guard down. And I'm afraid that we have a whole generation of kids who have seen their parents be Christians outside of the home, but at home, God doesn't matter a whole lot. And it shows in the choices of their entertainment, in how they treat each other, and and I could go on and on in all the details of our home life. But this is exactly what Paul is saying. The children are a reflection of what happens or doesn't happen at home. Now, I'm not putting 100% of the responsibility on the parents to make sure your kids are saved, okay? Again, that is God's work. But how many parents ignore and neglect living the gospel every day in front of their kids because it's not convenient or it's, not, it's, it's too hard or I just need time for myself? And it's hard to hear because it, it hits me here because I... I Honestly, I look back at at my kids who are gone, um, and and I think, man, I could have done so much a lot better, okay? But that's what Paul is saying here. Scripturally, we're taught that a godly life will lead people to Jesus Christ, and it's that example that's continuously lived at home that helps children understand God is real, God is the most important thing in my life, and salvation is a totally different life. It's not just adding a religion to my life. It is living God's life for me, and therefore I'm ready and willing to sacrifice and give up whatever it takes to follow Christ and obey him. And most people aren't willing to do that. So as parents, we teach our children about God and Christianity and how we live at home. And that has a huge impact on what they think about God and about Christianity and about the gospel. Now, I can go and I can quote all kinds of people who have abandoned church and say, yeah, 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 I went to church, I did the church thing, I went to Sunday school, I went to Christian school. It just wasn't real. I saw so many contradictions and so much hypocrisy, and most of it was at home. And so Paul's saying here, In Titus chapter 1, the qualification for an elder is that his children have to be true believers through salvation. I can't read it any other way, and I can't interpret it any other way. Now, that's not my opinion. That's what it says, true believers, okay? And again, we have an issue here, like when we talked about divorce, where something that could be outside of a man's control affects his qualification to be installed as an elder in a church according to God's definition, not my impression, not my opinion. Now, we want to argue this point, okay? And it took me a long time to get to this point, and I I still am like, that's hard. Why? Because it's easier to kind of uh, compromise and make it more amenable to our worldly nature and to our weaknesses of ourselves and 
not take responsibility for ourselves and blame other people and blame the person themselves and blame God sometimes. And we make accommodation for an ungodly culture that's leaked into the church and we want to redefine God's definition. But what the Bible says is, his children have to believe, be believers, pistos. And I, I, I don't know how else to read that. So all of that is for that point. And remember, it's God who appoints elders. It's not our opinion about who is qualified. We just recognize these people because they meet all the qualifications that God has given us. Okay? So if you want to argue with God about that, go ahead. Okay? Uh, you can talk to the Lord, ask him to show you something else if, if that's what he designed. And I prayed about this a lot. And this is, I couldn't get past this. But if we want to argue with God about this, then, you know, go read Job and find out how far Job got when he argued with God. God basically just said, all right, gird up your loins like a man, stand here and answer me. And God asked him questions he couldn't answer. And Job finally said, okay, I give up. You're right. I have no reason to question you. I have no right to question you. You do whatever you want. Okay? So that's where we are. Titus 1 says, believing children, and that's a reference to children at any point in their lives. So I have to take it as it's written. So then Paul gives us the reason for this in verse 5. He says, his household under control, and then he says, um, believing children or faithful children, not accused of unruliness. Um, in verse 4, I'm sorry, he says, I'm in the wrong book. Let's get back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. That would help. All right. In verse 4, he says, one that ruleth his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. Gravity just means serious about his position as a father, by the way. Okay, and taking that job seriously. And in verse 5, he gives us the reason. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Now, an elder's primary function is to teach the word of God through his words and his works so that others will follow him in following Christ. So it's about the example, not just about his words, but about, about the example that he gives to us. And this goes back to the previous verse, and he basically is asking, if he can't do that with his own children, how can he do that in the church? If he can't bring his own children to understand the truth of God's word and the importance of it in their lives, how can he do that with the church? Okay? And when a man stands in the pulpit and says, this is how you're supposed to live, this is how you're supposed to conduct yourself, this is God's standard for your life, this is what God expects of you, and this is how you're supposed to raise your children according to the scriptures— and then you look at his life and you go, well, wait a minute. Your kids are like often never, never land here. Who are you to tell us that? You see what I'm saying? When we go back to that word blameless, it means not being able to be accused. And again, it may not be any fault of his own. He may have done everything he could to influence his kids and to teach them the scripture. And they just rebelled. Okay, but that's God's choice. And he says, if you can't do it at home, you're not qualified to do it in the church. That's God's definition. Because the home is the testing place. And if your home isn't right, then it brings a reproach upon the name of Christ and upon the church and upon the position. And so he says, For if a man not know, know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? As the father goes, so goes the home. As the leadership goes, so goes the church. Okay? 
And so Paul makes it very clear here and in, in Titus. You have to look at his home life. It's important to see the product of his home life because that will tell us something about what we can expect him to do in the church. Now, if a pastor or elder is totally different at church than he is at home, that's a problem too because then we've lost that integrity. There's not consistency there. And it will show. We talked about legacy a few weeks ago. The legacy of an elder should be one of pointing people to Christ, period. It's not about him. It's not about his family, even. It's about pointing people to Christ. That starts with his family. This is when we talked about Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the Shema. As we make God the most important thing in our lives, that will be reflected not only in our families, but in how we work with the church and how we do ministry. Okay, so the home is the testing place, Paul says, and a man who would qualify to be an elder must live and lead at home the truth of his submission to God's authority in every area of his life in order to be able to teach it to his children and to those under his authority in the church. And so if he's not doing it at home and it shows in his children, he's not qualified to lead in the church. That's what Paul says. All right, so that was a big one. In chapter 4 and 5, that's his home life, the test of his home life. It has to be a model, what God says the model should be, for how he's going to lead the church, because that translation will happen. Then verse 6, he goes on and he says, not a novice. This is the next one. First of all, we see the, um, the, mer- I'm sorry, the, the um, model of his home life as our first qualification here, as we get into these last three, the next one is the measure of his spiritual maturity. In verse 6, he says, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Not a novice. Now, that phrase carries a lot as well. The word for novice here, this is the only place it's used in the Bible. It's found in other Greek works of the time, and it's used to refer to a newly planted tree. So Paul's using kind of a metaphor here to explain what kind of a person we're talking about. First of all, obviously, it's a new convert, somebody who's just been saved recently. Okay, And Paul says, they're not ready to be an elder. You don't pick somebody who's just been saved to be an elder because they're not ready for it. And he's talking about not just the time period since a man's been saved, but his spiritual growth as well. Now, I've talked to people, and, and, you know, I don't doubt their salvation, but, you know, you talk to them, they're like, oh, I've been saved 30 years. And, you, and you're like, oh, awesome, this is great, you know, we can have fellowship in the Spirit, God can work through us, God can help us, help each other. And you start talking about Scripture, you know, and you go, you know, um, what, you know John three sixteen for God so loved the world, isn't that a great verse? And they go, yeah, I don't know that one. You know, in the question marks. Okay, well, God is always good. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that. And you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, these are basics, right? These are things that every believer should know or at least should learn over a period of time. And if this person's been saved 25 or 30 years and they don't know the basics, we have a problem. Okay? Now, it goes way beyond the basics. Right? Now, if we were to take somebody with an average and I'm going to use the, the world statistics, okay? The average intelligence about the Bible and say, hey, you know what? Your life looks really good. You seem to be a good man of God. We're going to put you as an elder. 
And he gets up and he goes, well, you know, let's uh, read today and I'll find something that's more familiar to us. And, you know, Proverbs is good. And Proverbs says, let's see, it, um, answer a fool according to his folly. And then the next verse says, answer not a fool according to his folly. Well, you know, I think that must be a contradiction. So let's try another book. Okay, is that, that's a serious issue. So what Paul's talking about is the sum total of his spiritual maturity. It's not just about how much Bible he knows, about how many verses he's memorized, even about necessarily just the character of his life. There are lots of good men who may have that moral character that we're talked about but don't have the spiritual maturity necessarily to lead in the church of God. Okay, As far as understanding Scripture and applying it to their lives and growth in, in the Spirit, Okay, and again, we look at the, the fruit of the Spirit. Christ says, by the fruit, you shall know them, right? So we look at the fruit of the Spirit. Is the fruit of the Spirit evident in their lives? And I'm not talking, well, he, he loves everybody, but, you know, he, he's depressed half the time, and he's anxious, and he gets angry a lot. No, if all the, spirit, the fruit of the Spirit's not there, in some measure, it doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to be there in some measure, then we say, yeah, he's got a way to go yet. God's still working on him. I don't think he's quite ready. But that's what God is saying to us here. This spiritual maturity that's defined by how a person lives, by how he teaches, by how he, he treats people, by how he leads, all of these things are things we need to consider as far as is he ready to be an elder or a leader in the church of God? Okay? And you can talk about people who, again, have been Christians for 30 years, and yet they still struggle having devotions, or they still struggle reading their Bible, and still struggle remembering to pray. And when I say that, I don't mean every day. I mean every week, possibly, or every, oh, well, yeah, you know, last time I prayed was, I think, uh, Thanksgiving. That, That becomes a real issue. And so Paul's talking about a person who is spiritually mature, and it shows in how they live, how they talk, how they relate to people, how they relate to God. Okay? So spiritual maturity is defined in how much we have grown in godliness. And really, we can equate spiritual maturity with how we truly love God. Now, let me define that, because the culture wants to redefine this idea of loving God. Okay? The culture's idea that is leaked into the church of loving God is, oh, I just love it when I think about God. Oh, it's like he's my boyfriend. That is not what the Bible's talking about when it talks about loving God. Let me give you what the Bible says that God's love is, or that loving God is. Jesus says, if you love me, do you know the rest of the phrase? Keep my commandments, okay? So we love God, we show him we love him, by obeying him. Now, if you don't obey God, I don't care what you say, you don't love him, because that's what the Bible says. First John tells us that if we have fellowship with God, we will walk in the light, right? That means we will live according to God's truth. Now, if you don't care what your life looks in comparison with the Bible, then you don't love God. That's what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible tells us in First John that if you say you love God and you don't love each other, then you're a liar, So how we treat each other has to do with how we love God. Chapter 3 in 1 John goes on to say that our love for God is measured by how we live in truth. How much of God's word is important to you to change your life and change the way you live? 
See, if you don't have a biblical principle for every decision and everything you do behind it, then you're winging it. And you really don't love God that much. Chapter 4 in, verse, in 1 John says that if we love God, we will love other people. I mentioned that already. So God defines what our love for him looks like. We can't redefine it and say, oh, it's this emotional feeling. I love when I get to come to church and be with his people and all. No, that's not loving God, okay? That's an emotional part of being together with God and God's people. But to love God is to obey him. It's to put him as the sole authority in your life, to serve, to bow down, to worship him as king, because that's where he belongs, and to do the things that please him, not me. That's what it means to love God. And that's what Paul's talking about when he says, we don't want a novice. We don't want somebody who's not spiritually mature. And it has nothing necessarily to do with how long we're saved. It has to do with how much the word of God and the Holy Spirit have changed us to become more like Christ and less like the world that surrounds us. That's what Paul's talking about here. Titus, again, adds something to this qualification. I should have had you keep your finger there. Go back to Titus 1 real quickly. In verse 9, in Titus 1, he says, Holding fast the faithful word that he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Titus gives this qualification that you need, as an elder, you need to understand the Bible well enough that you will be able to recognize false teaching when it happens and then to refute it with the truth. Now, sad to say, there's a large population that go to churches, first of all, that can't even recognize false teaching because they don't know the Bible well enough to understand the truth to recognize what's not truth. Okay, that's why we meet together. That's why we learn the Bible, so that we can learn what God says, we can recognize the false stuff that's being propagated outside of God's word, okay? But Titus says that an elder has to understand, to know, to, to be able to apply the Bible, all of it, well enough to be able to refute the false teaching, not just recognize it. Now, this was a challenge for me, and I, I, I have seen God's hand in my life in preparing me for ministry. Because when I was about 30 or 32, I think it was, um, we were in Michigan. I wasn't a pastor then, but we met some people that had totally different theology than us. I'm not going to say they weren't saved, but their theology was a lot different, okay? And they were talking about things, and I was like, no, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's what the Bible says. And when we got down to a discussion about it, this man and this group that he came from, I mean, they turned to Scripture and they're like, okay, read this verse. Okay, read this verse. This is what it says. How do you argue against that? And my argument was, well, you know, everybody knows that it's not that way. And then I realized, I don't know Scripture enough to be able to refute these arguments. I don't know Scripture enough even to be able to give support for what I say I believe. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people are that way where we don't really understand Scripture. We've heard things. We've heard people say things. We, we kind of know what this is supposed to be, but we have no grounding, really, in the Bible and Scripture itself to come out and say, okay, well, you know, if you take this verse and this passage, and this is what this author of the Bible is saying here, here's the principle that God's teaching us, and then when you go to this passage over here, and you compare those two, and this is what it has to be saying. I mean, just like I, I try to do every Sunday here. 
We use Scripture to define and explain Scripture. And that's what Titus says. That's what a man needs to be able to do in order to be a pastor. He can't be a novice. He has to be experienced in knowing, understanding, and handling the Word of God and living it out in his life so that he's not only able to teach it, but he can refute false doctrine as well. That's what Titus says when he says you convince the gainsayers. So Titus uses this phrase, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. uh, John MacArthur says the truth of the word must be woven into into the very fabric of his thinking and living. And this is exactly what Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says when it says, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It means my total thinking process has been changed from a humanistic approach, this is what I believe, and this is what I think because it's good for me, to this is what God says, and therefore, no matter what I think, I have to conform to it. Everything is governed by Scripture now. And Titus gives the reason why it's important. It's so that not only can we recognize false doctrine, but we can refute it and lead people in truth. Isn't that what an elder's supposed to do in the first place? That's his primary goal. I mean, would you really want somebody up in front teaching you who really doesn't understand Scripture that well and doesn't live it in his life? And so Paul says, it's not a novice. He has to be spiritually mature. And the reason is in the second part of verse 6, he says, "Lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. What was Satan's sin? Pride, right? Pride. When you put an immature person in a position of authority, nine times out of ten they will abuse it because they don't know how to handle it. What is 1 Peter? We studied this way back when we first started this series. What does 1 Peter 5 say about an elder? Peter, remember, was kind of the highest of the apostles at this point. And he's teaching other elders. And the whole first part of chapter 5 in 1 Peter He's emphasizing submission and humility as characteristics that need to be part of an elder's life. And when you put an immature person in authority, what do they usually do? They throw their authority around like a club. They push people to get them to do what they want. And it becomes my way or the highway because I'm in charge and therefore you must listen to me. That's an immature response to authority. And Paul says, you can't put an immature person in that authority because they won't be able to handle it. And they will bring upon themselves the same condemnation of pride that Satan did when he challenged God in heaven. And we can't have that. So that's why Paul warns. And he warns later on in 1 Timothy 5, lay hands suddenly on no one, on no man, neither be partaker of other man's sins. In other words, if we as the people of the church are not practiced and understanding enough about the qualifications and we just pick somebody willy-nilly because they're a very charismatic individual, they seem like a good leader, they've done well in the business world, they seem to know the Bible a little bit, they're a great teacher, And we put him in a position, and then the church starts to fall apart, and the church has problems, and he starts to abuse his authority, and people get mistreated and start to leave the church. It's not just his fault. Paul says we actually are participating in all of those sins because apart from God's standard, we've appointed somebody to that position, 
not caring if God has recognized and called that person to that position. And that's why Paul says, lay lay hands on no man suddenly. The idea is we need to get to know the person, to see how they live, to see what their family's like, to see what they do in their pastime, to get to talk to them a little bit. What is their reputation, both in the church and out there? And that's the one we're going to get to next, very quickly. So the the measure of his... um, of his spiritual maturity, is important. And then Paul goes on in verse 7, he says, he must have a good report of them which are without. That's the the last one here. This is the merit of his public reputation. The character of a person who is an elder is not just reflected in how they live at home and how they live in the church. It's also reflected in how they live out here. The word, again, is integrity. And integrity is built through consistency. If you are not the same person here and at home and out there, there's a problem. Okay? That's what Paul's saying. And you put all of these together, he says, look at his home, look at his public reputation, look at how he lives everywhere, and it has to be consistent. And consistently, according to God's word. So he goes on in verse 7, he says, you have to look at his outside reputation. What do people out in the world, even unsaved people, think about them? Now, you go to one of them, and they go, well, yeah, the guy's a Jesus freak, okay? All he talks about is God. If I was in the church, I'd be like, well, that's a good thing, right? If he goes out there and he never talks about God, what's happening? Isn't he supposed to be doing the work of an evangelist? Okay? So we carry God with us no matter where we go, and this is for all of us, I'm saying the model for all of us is what we're looking at today, but specifically it's the qualification for a man who's going to stand up and lead the church. And so this has to be a point of consistency. Is the man the same no matter who he's with and where he is? Because that's what what defines integrity. And here's the reason. Because how you live and how you treat other people out there, especially unsafe people, how you treat the unlovely is the platform from which you will have to give the gospel. Now, if you go and ignore all the people that don't meet up to your status in society, how are you ever going to bring them the gospel if you don't care about where they are and who they are? They don't care what you have to say until you show them you care. That's not just a nice phrase. That's literally what Christ teaches all through Scripture. And look how he lived. He cared about people. He healed people. He provided people's needs. But he gave them the truth of the gospel. And he never would have had that opportunity if he had treated the Samaritans the way the rest of the Jews treated the Samaritans. And so Paul's saying, the person who's supposed to be the example to the rest of the flock has to live outside there with unbelievers in a way that that integrity is maintained that that testimony is maintained. He's not different with other people, with unsaved people, than he is with you at the church or he is with people in his house. We all have to be consistent in a godly and loving lifestyle so no one outside the church can accuse us of ill treatment of them. That's what it means to be blameless, and especially for an elder, because he's the leader. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to close with just a few verses here. Philippians chapter 2. 
And I put this in your bulletin. It says, do all things without murmuring and disputing. Most of us stop there, right? Do all things without murmuring and disputing. The next verse says this, that she may be blameless. There's that word, folks. And harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Now, when you start a conversation, you go, man, I can't handle this heat anymore. It's just so humid, I feel like I'm going to die. There's so much rain, I might as well build an ark. Right? Who controls the weather? Do you really believe that? Why are we complaining about it? Because when we do that, we're saying, God, you made a mistake. You messed up. We're supposed to have sunshine 360 days a year. Didn't you get that memo? Yeah, we're telling God what it's supposed to be, right? Do all things without murmuring and disputing that you may be blameless because we're lights in the world. And this is why it's so important for an elder and a pastor to be that example to the people that he's leading. In Romans chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, I'm not going to read it, but Paul condemns the leadership of the Jews for this very thing. Most of the major prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they, they are basically con- condemnations of the leadership of Israel because they've led Israel astray in how they lived. And Paul says, if people in your community see you as unloving and uncaring and lazy and a cheat and you have sabotaged your opportunity to bring them the gospel of Christ, how do your neighbors see you? What is your reputation without? It's extremely important for someone who's called to be an elder. And Paul goes on, he says, this is the snare of the devil at the end of that verse. Satan doesn't need to destroy the church from outside. All he needs to do is to infiltrate the church with so-called Christians who are going to tear it down from inside and do all his dirty work for him. And unfortunately, many times that starts with the elders. And that's why it's so important for an elder and a leader and representative of the Church of Christ to be consistent in godly living, and in loving all people, even outside of the church, that the testimony of Christ is not reproached and his ministry is not impeded. A person cannot stand up in the pulpit and preach something that he does not live. It doesn't work. It doesn't work for him, and it doesn't work for you. We call it hypocrisy. Now, I'm going to quit here, but these qualifications that we talked about today, are an absolute must. Paul starts this whole section. He says, an elder must have these things. And I believe the reason why so many churches are struggling and why Christianity is in such disarray today is because we have compromised on God's standards. And we've said, yeah, well, you know what? Yeah, I know what it says, but it's not a big deal. And if we're willing to compromise on things like this, then we'll eventually be willing to compromise on doctrine and on God's truth and on whether God exists at all. If you don't take it as absolute authority from God, then you don't take it as authority at all. We don't get to pick and choose. 
And so Paul says these are the qualifications that must be there, all of them. Not most of them, not a 75 or an 85 or a 90% score, all of them, to some degree. Now I mentioned, a man is not going to be perfect. But these have to be apparent as a pattern of his life. Because as the leadership of the church goes, so goes the church. Now, one more statement. You might say, well, this limits then who can be an elder. that, That doesn't leave a whole lot of people open for consideration. James chapter 3, verse 1. Be not many masters or teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. God has not ordained a whole bunch of people to be leaders in the church. He's ordained a few. And he's qualified them, and he's called them, and he has gifted them for that position. And if we have 100 people in the church and 99 want to be elders, who are they going to lead? Okay? Yeah, exactly right. God's qualifications don't leave a lot of space for a lot of people. But that's God's plan. You want to argue with him? Take it up with him. But the only way that we will succeed in fulfilling God's purpose for his church is to be faithful in doing it the way he has instructed us to do it. Period. And we don't have time, but I can give you a thousand examples of why churches and how churches have failed because they've compromised on what the Bible says. And this is one of those areas. God's given us everything we need to recognize his choice for leadership. We cannot compromise God's church by compromising these qualifications. We have to follow them. It's God's plan. It's God's man. It's God's position. It's God's church. And it's God's results. So if we want to get what he wants for us, we have to do it his way. We'll stop there. Next time we'll take up deacons, what their ministry is, how they function in the church, and look a little bit at their qualifications, although they're very similar to what an elder or a pastor is. Let's have a word of prayer as we close today. Lord, thank you again for your word. And we know sometimes it's very difficult for us to hear and to accept, and yet, Lord, it's your word, and we have to accept it as the sole authority. Lord, we need to follow your way if we want your results and if we want your blessing. And so, Lord, help us to be determined and committed to following your truth. I pray that you would work in each of us, that you would work in this church to make it what it needs to be. I pray that you would bring your blessing upon each of our lives as we follow you and help us to realize that so often we forfeit your blessings because we compromise your truth or abandon your way. So, Lord, help us to be repentant to come back to you, to be submissive to your authority in our lives, and to live as lights in the world so that you will be glorified through us. We give you the glory and praise in everything, and we lift up your name in the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.